Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. But before we get into this week's episode, we have to insert a quick disclaimer here. If you're new to the show and don't know how it works, you should know that the first 15 or so minutes of every episode, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, is just Nat and I talking to each other, shouting out our sponsors, shouting out our donors, and doing some housekeeping. And if that sounds like something that doesn't interest you, that is totally fine. You can just expand the show notes and the very first sentence in all caps will say, skip two and then a timestamp and you can skip to that time at any time otherwise welcome to the intro Welcome back, guys, to episode 165 of Let's Get Haunted. We can't believe that we're almost done with November's episodes already. But before we close out the month with listener stories next week, Nat and I thought it would be fun to bring on a guest Mm -hmm. that a couple of you actually have been suggesting to us this year, Kaylin Moore. Kaylin Moore is the host of Heart Starts Pounding, which she describes as a podcast for the darkly curious. She credits her dark curiosity with being raised in a Stephen King-esque New England town. She's from where the first ever witch hanged in the American witch trials lived and where one of the most prolific female serial killers of the 20th century killed her victims. Ever since she was little, she was told about how her grandfather helped catch that exact same serial (gasps) killer. What? Now she spends all of her time exploring haunted locations and researching mysteries. And who wouldn't with a spooky upbringing like that? So we'd like to give a warm welcome to Kaylin. Welcome, Kaylin, to Let's Get Haunted. Wow. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You're like Van Helsing, you know? You're, you're like, and also you podcast by yourself, like just by yourself. What do you do when you're like losing your shit and you can't go on anymore? You just like pretend to talk to someone else and then pretend to say to yourself, no, you have to keep going. Like, what do you do? I literally visualize myself, like I record in my closet and I visualize myself talking to like a group of my friends to try to keep the pep up or else... I just get like dead voice. I I was even surprised that you just did the whole intro and kind of like one breath because normally I'm like re-recording every sentence because I'm just like tripping myself up. So I was very impressed. (laughs) Oh, We definitely do that as well. But uh, (laughs) we've been trying to get better about intros because I feel like I don't know how Nat feels. But for me, I feel like our intros take the longest for Mm -hmm. me to edit. So we're trying to get more efficient. Totally. Allie's also just like a podcasting robot. Like I feel like she (laughs) can just podcast for hours on end Allie doesn't expire like I have an expiration like after like a few hours I'm like uh I can't do it anymore I'm like not interested I need to like do something else I need to go outside I need to like come back to this at another time where I feel like Allie doesn't have that and I think that's what you need wow to do a podcast is like just like totally uncut focus a blessing and a curse I lose my voice after an hour I think like around the 45 minute mark just recording constantly like on my own my you can hear it in my voice sometimes by the end of the episode I think people notice that like I'm cracking a little bit because my voice is just so tired I I'm just thinking it's so cool because I feel like doing it by yourself is like so brave you know you don't have anyone else to validate you like you don't have anyone else to share that sorry if I'm freaking you out you don't have anyone else to (laughs) share the burden with you don't have anyone else to like share the fear with you know like Allie and I, this year, we went to um, the Shorty Awards, and the whole time I was thinking, like, there was no fucking way I would do this unless I was with 
Alyssa. Way too scary. And obviously we meet people all the time that like do their own thing. We even sat at the table with some guy that like had his own blog and had come out there by himself. Super nice guy. But yeah, it's just, it's a whole other, I think we're like codependent on each other. And so I just think it's really, really cool that you're independently just doing it on your own. No, thank you. I appreciate that. I Sometimes I do wish I had another person just because it's nice to go to things with someone. It's nice to kind of bounce ideas off of someone or you can make the episodes a little bit longer if there's another person. And also like there, I feel like there's a lot you can do. Like you guys can do live shows and go on tour. I'm like, if I do a live show, it's just going to be me sitting on a stage talking until my voice goes hoarse at like 45 minutes and then be like, okay, guys, I got to go. Go short and you go hard, right? True. true Maybe true. what we can do, we can team up and mm. we'll go on tour together. It's <gasps> a great idea. And we'll have that way, like, even though you're going to be doing your own thing on the stage and then Nat and I will be doing our own thing, like, yeah. but we're in it together. You that know? would be so fun. Like rotating I'm like the opening act. Yeah. I like tell a story and then you guys come on. Right. And we could, or we could be the opening act. We can just rotate you know what yeah. i mean there's no yeah. hierarchy in we'll women in podcasting mm -hmm. yeah we'll just switch off oh that God, would I honestly that. be so fun though this is our first year that we've been collaborating with other paranormal podcasts we have a lot of friends that do like comedy and stand-up comedy and comedy podcasts we've had them on our show before but this year we were just kind of asking our audience hey like what would you want to see from us and one of the main things was paranormal podcasts and we've been really pleasantly surprised with the connections we've made for such an off-the-wall topic and or like a dark topic i feel like everyone is really cool yeah. that we've worked with so far it's really nice to talk to like-minded people that's the best part about at least doing heart starts pounding is just being able to find this community of people who also kind of think like me i i don't know if you both have done this but i'll be at a party or at a dinner or something and people are like oh what if you know like the subject of like what you've been reading or thinking about kind of comes up and i'm always like retelling someone the darkest story they've ever heard and I can see yeah. the light in their eyes go dark and I'm like oh my god this is so like horrifying to them or I'll like I re will uh, recommend mo like documentaries and podcasts to people and they'll come back and be like I can't listen to that that's really messed up <laughs> and I'm like oh I forgot that not everyone's like this I'm sorry right. Nat and I are constantly putting our foot in our mouths in public spaces so that's very relatable <laughs> the reason why we've decided to start a paranormal podcast is because we both went down this like rabbit hole of just reading the most horrific things about 9-11 like survivor mm. stories and yeah. like and it's so dark and especially this would have been like maybe 2012 or when did we meet like 2010 when Nat and I yeah, met. Yeah, probably 20, and so 2011. Even then was too soon to be bringing that type of stuff up. Yeah, and so luckily like we that. didn't. But we would. But <laughs> then, you know, you're trying. You're like, hey, did you read this thing? And so you'd have to. Like, yeah. It's almost like feeling ashamed about being interested in dark stuff. It wasn't even um, like dark. Yeah. Just like I feel like back in the day, yeah. like in 2011, if you like went on Reddit, you were like alt. You know, like you were like, friend. yeah, oh, I remember those like, days. Like you have yeah. read it. Like, wow. Like, what is that? Is that like Facebook? And you're like, okay, this person is like, can't, this is going to take too long. So like, we're not going to get into this. Yeah. And you're like, it's like Facebook for if you want to like have to go to therapy afterwards. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like an early adopter of Reddit. Well, quote unquote early adopter. It's been around forever, but I started using it also when I was in college back when no one used it. Right. And it was, you know, there was a lot of stuff on there that there was not moderators for and you could actually go on and see something like watch a person die, like yeah, really, right. really messed up yeah. stuff. And so I like got into a lot of like weird rabbit holes where I was seeing things I shouldn't and stuff. But 
Yeah, and it's hard when no one else is really doing those things also because you're like, uh, who do I? No one's going to feel bad for me. I was on a bad website and I saw a bad thing. <laughs> right. Like it's my own fault. It's my own fault. And so then is that kind of what the inspiration was for starting your show to find like-minded people or an outlet for you to express some of those interests that aren't socially smiled upon to bring up in a crowded room? Yeah, definitely. I think like the idea of having a dark curiosity, which I said is what the show is for, you know, like, like we were talking about, you don't always have that person that you can be like, hey, I wanted to do a deep dive on this really dark thing. Like I wanted to learn more about 9-11 and it's a really dark, sad thing, but there's something about it that I, wa- I want to learn more about what happened that day. So the show really kind of was born from just my dark curiosity and like wanting to do those deep dives and wanting to feel like there's a safe space to talk about it. I don't know, not to sensationalize it, but just be like, hey, this is, you know, whether it's I talk about 9-11 in a third man episode where we're talking about, you know, the third man syndrome and there's, you know, this like supernatural thing that shows up to people in life or death situations and we can do kind of like this deep dive into, okay, what were the people who were dying? What was happening to them? And what did they see? Yeah. So it it just, it really was born from that, from wanting to like explore my dark curiosity, wanting to do something long form about it, and also wanting to find other freaks that love it like me. (laughs) Yeah. We talked a little bit about third man syndrome. Nat talked about it in the Mount Everest episode where some people at like, you know, the moment where their psyche is breaking, they're like on their last you know, moments trying to get to the peak of Mount Everest and they feel, yeah, this like paranormal presence that's sort of guiding them. And what is that? And and is it, yeah, is it maybe like the spirit of somebody else that has passed in that area or? Totally. And you know what's crazy about it too is I did a TikTok about it. When I made the episode, I wanted to do a TikTok that would bring people to the episode. And that video ended up doing really well because so many people shared it and they were like, hey, I wasn't on Mount Everest doing this insanely crazy feat. I was just in a normal person car crash that was ended up being really bad. And I also saw something. And then more and more people started sharing it being like, I saw something. My mom saw something or yeah, just these like everyday people that were in accidents where they also felt this supernatural presence come. It's when I was doing the episode, I thought it was really only something that happened in these insanely crazy situations. But yeah, having a community around me of people who really like this stuff too, I saw that it actually could happen to any of us. Um, And that was really cool. And speaking of community, it's time for us to shout out our amazing band of weirdos, the Haunties, without whom this podcast would not exist. If you'd like to hear your name shouted out in a future episode, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash let's get haunted. And this week, we'd love to give a very special shout out to Patricia Militia, Amanda, Jess M, Dorothy, Brielle, Jenna S, Kinsley M, Padaka and Sonny, Miss Natty Cat, Ripley F, Zeke G, Amanda S, Emma D, Rebecca H, Lindsay M, Cetus, Taylor M, Anna S, Cat and Alice the Malice, Alex W, Madison M, Julia M, Alex P, I'm Mero Biba, Sabrina P, Amanda S, Mary Grace G, Rake, Nicole S, Hannah MM, Brian G, Corky M, Pete, Deja, Rebecca S, Y2 in LA, 
Mike S, Maria O, Brandy B, Lauren B, Fresh Zombie, Spencer S, Samantha D, Victoria, Pedrito El Maldito, Alex W, Laura, Lily Bell C, Fred H, Ashley D, Madeline B, Danielle S, Macy D, Jenny Squiddy, Ilea J, Ilya J, Madison E, Sarah J, Jamie F, Kathleen M, Sapphire, Grandma Painter, Mikey BDX7, Omar M, Cynthia V, Lexi L, Kayla P, Brianna, Brianna, Marques C, Marches C, Peter Barker, aka Camry G, Brianna C, Brianna C, Robin V, Kayla M, Taryn K, Ariel R, Ariel R, Anna R, Meg T, James H, Rachel M, Molly, Phoenix Crippen, Lily, Courtney, Deech, Jess B, Cheesy, Grace K, Lisa B, Jennifer M, Red Moon, Silver Snaffles, Caroline L, Carolyn L, and Elizabeth P. Thank you all so, so much for your very generous donations this month. Like I said, we cannot run this podcast without all of the haunties that subscribe on Patreon. And we also want to give a very warm welcome to a wave of new patrons and new listeners that have been coming over to our show after all of the collaborations that we did in October. We just want to say thank you so much for giving us a chance. We hope you stick around. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you'd like to sign up to hear your name shouted out on a future episode, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash let's get haunted, where we have two tiers available, tier one for $5 a month and tier two for $10 a month. And be looking out in January for a special discounted Patreon deal that we will be offering to people who want to buy a year's subscription at a time. But more info on that later. And now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. Not to change subjects, but I'm really, really interested. I'm sure you've repeated it a thousand times, but I want to know the story of your grandfather catching the serial killer. I love to talk. I I honestly will talk about it ad nauseum. So ask away. But the the gist of it, so it it was my dad's grandfather so my great grandfather because this was 1907 to 1916 that this was happening in my town um and yes my family has lived in the same town for i think i clocked i think i went as far back as the 1680s like not the mayflower but the ship afterwards we've been in connecticut forever but so back in the early 1900s there was this woman amy archer gilligan she moved to my hometown she bought this big house and she opened it up for elderly patients she was going to do end-of-life care for them and there are two ways that you could join her uh convalescent home you could pay seven dollars a week or you could pay a thousand dollars for lifetime care and everyone picked the thousand dollars for lifetime care so she stopped having consistent income it was just like one big lump sum she would spend the whole thing and then she had no more money Mm. so mysteriously a lot of people start dying and a lot of beds start freeing up in this convalescent home and my great-grandfather who was 22 at the time when this started was like a junior 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 reporter Mm. at the hartford current one of which is like the oldest newspaper in america and he was on obituary duty he just had to write up people's obituaries and he noticed that there were a lot of obituaries coming in from this one convalescent home. And he tried to tell his boss and his boss was like, 
it's old people they die what do you mm -hmm. expect and he's like no this is real this is like seven times higher than the average or even higher than that so he kind of starts poking around on his own and he was actually a member of this thing in town there were no police in windsor at the time so they started this rogue detecting society where it was like citizen sleuths that would solve crimes oh he was the God. treasurer and so he starts poking around and the more people he talks to he's like no, something is happening. Like there is something not right. The patients in the home are all complaining about how mean she is. They get sick after like long bouts of really strange illnesses and they're all dying of the same thing. And also the guy coming in to say what they died of is all writing random stuff on their death certificates that has nothing to do with how they died, like kidney failure. And the person was like throwing up profusely until they died. So Eventually, this leads to a full investigation. They're able to get her because they exhume her, which was one of the first autopsies done. Or they, they exhume a body of someone who died within the home. One of the first autopsies done in Connecticut. They didn't have a lot of tools Ooh. to do autopsies. But the thing about arsenic, which is how she was killing people, is when you ingest a lot of arsenic, you don't decompose at a normal rate. Really? So they dug up a guy like three years after. So between like six months and three years after he had died, perfect condition oh my god that's oh so haunted god. that's and insane. they just yeah they knew at that moment they were like okay something's up whoa i wonder if people who like were supposedly vampires or slash are vampires if they just like were poisoned or something you know what i mean oh There's gotta that's be a an interesting there. theory like yeah because one of the tropes of the bodies of vampires is you would have to put a stake through their dead body otherwise they like you would dig them up and they'd look perfectly intact and that's how you knew it was a vampire yeah there's a lot of actually interesting vampire lore in new england specifically too about why they thought people were vampires a lot of it had to do with tuberculosis actually at the time i don't oh. know if you've heard about this no please go this is so fuck this is like so exciting for me right now i love yeah. this <laughs> i know i i nerd out on this stuff this is what i read all day so tuberculosis is like if I have a cold and we all hang out, you leave pretty much the next day. Within a week, you start feeling bad. Tuberculosis doesn't really work like that. You can get it person to person, but sometimes it incubates for months, even years. So people in someone's family would die of tuberculosis, get buried, and then years later, their loved one, their wife, their child would start getting sick. And what people thought was that the person was possessing them from beyond the grave. Oh. And so they assumed it was some sort of like afterlife thing and the way that they would try to cure this person's tuberculosis is they would dig up the body of the person they di that died who they thought was the vampire and they would pull out their heart and their liver i'm pretty sure you might have to fact check that but i'm pretty sure it was the heart and the liver i won't and they would I won't burn it to it, ash I believe you <laughs> they would burn it to ash and make a drink out of it and the person <sighs> who was suffering would have to drink and it never worked i mean right. obviously it never <laughs> worked <laughs> Damn. But people were so confused about tuberculosis at the time. No one had any cure right. for it. So they were just trying anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm laughing because it's like that is the history of medicine is like, well, we were trying this for about 20 years. Oh my and God, was right. it working? No. But Trial we just error. kept trying until somebody had a better idea. Like, that's what yeah. so much of life is. It's just so relatable. Medicine especially. It's just like it's so if you ever really do a deep dive into the history of like surgery. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Oh. The amount of people that had to die so that we can just go get our appendix out and survive is right. 
amazing. Yeah. God yeah. bless them. Yeah. Do you guys have anything else you wanted to say in the intro before we get into today's episode? Because I'm actually very excited about it. I had been researching this topic casually for, I would say, probably a year. And by casually, I mean, like, you know, you go online, you read some little blurb and you're like, that's interesting. Like, make a mental note. I want to, like, look more into this later. And then you kind of forget about it. And then a couple months go by and I read something else about it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, you know, I'm going to look up this aspect now. And so I feel like when I do that, it makes a topic so overwhelming that I don't want to cover it because I'm like, oh, I've been thinking about this for so long. How can I do it justice? But I knew it was something I really wanted to put out because this topic is so fascinating to me. And when we were asking people, like, who would you like to see on the show? Your name came up and Kaylin. And so I was like, okay, let me look up at her show. And I saw that you had done that episode recently. And I was like, this is perfect because I don't think we've ever had an an episode where one of the guests knew what the topic was going to be. Normally it'll be one of us researches, Mm -hmm. the other host doesn't know what the topic is because we want genuine reactions. So I think this will be fun because Nat doesn't know what the topic is. Oh, Um, great. Yeah, you do. So I think I'm just excited to dive into this. I'm so excited and I'm so curious, Nat, because when I put out this episode, first of all, I put out this episode as one of my Halloween stories because when I initially read the story of the Codex Gigas, I it was actually a story that rattled me a little bit. I found it so scary and I put it out into the world. Half the people were like, this is the scariest thing I've ever heard. And half the people were like, this is such a joke. This story is not scary at all. So I'm so <laughs> curious to see where you Ooh. fall. I, everyone is, there's no one in the middle. I never know like I've tried to figure out like what it is that makes me just like triggered by something because like sometimes I'll just decide I don't like something for no reason sometimes with these episodes I don't I don't know what my reaction is going to be like like it could either be like oh wow this is like great I really love this or I could just be like I need to leave right now yeah this is one of those for that yeah it'll be really interesting to see how you react to this and I just want to say if people want to go check out Kaylin's podcast Definitely, you can still listen to the Codex Gigas episode that she did because I tried to cover aspects that you didn't cover. So I yeah, feel like great. Ooh, your episode good. has stuff that I'm not talking about. And I feel like our episode has stuff that you didn't talk about. Perfect. Ooh. So without further ado, Kaylin, are you ready to get haunted? I'm so ready. I'm always ready. Buckle the fuck up because <laughs> here we go. Part one, the library. Founded in 1661, the National Library of Sweden is home to more than 18 million objects, ranging from posters and newspapers to floppy disks and videotapes. This impressive collection grows exponentially each year due to a referendum that makes it compulsory for all works produced in the Swedish language to have a copy kept in the National Library. That's crazy. Wait, so like anything produced in their country, a copy. So like radio show, a book. A shitpost? Isn't uh, there? There's like a meme in there, probably. <laughs> there has to be. I'm sure there's a Swedish meme in there. If we have any Swedish <laughs> listeners, any Swedish haunties listening to this, leave a comment on the photo dump for this episode at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. So while the goal of this library is primarily centered around preserving works about the country and its people, Some interesting international pieces have been opportunistically acquired over the years, usually during times of historic conflict, 
and the history of the library is not without scandal. For example, in 1953, the National Library of Sweden purchased a large amount of Russian literature during the chaos and confusion of the Soviet uprisings that followed the death of Joseph Stalin. This amount of literature purchased during a time of economic uncertainty was so vast that the library now has an entire section just dedicated to Slavonic works. In an older example of the library acquiring works during times of strife, the Swedish army looted the libraries and book collections of Bavaria, Prague, and the Czech Republic during the death and destruction that came with the Thirty Years' War. As one can imagine when picturing a library with roots dating back to the 1600s, the National Swedish Library, which is also sometimes referred to as the Royal Library, is impressive to say the least, with many rare and coveted books in its collection. Nevertheless, the infamy that comes from such an awe-inspiring collection is not always a good thing, as history has shown that valuable objects often breed greed. In 2004, an audit of the library revealed that the head librarian Anders Burius had stolen and sold somewhere between 56 and 62 of the library's rarest and most priceless books on the black market. I did not know that. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Wait, how'd they catch him? It's about to get much, much crazier, but the way they caught him is sort of anticlimactic. They had done an inventory of the books <laughs> because they had gotten a tip-off that something, like someone went in, was trying to find one of the books that is supposedly kept there because these are mm -hmm. all, like, most of these books are pretty historic and old and relevant. And then somebody was like, hey, the librarian is like not showing me this book and he keeps just telling me oh it's out for cleaning or oh i can't find it right now and so they did this um audit of all the books and they realized wow. that some of the most priceless wow. were missing that's such a shame you only get like 10 percent of the total value when you sell stuff on the black market <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right you have to be real desperate to do it i i agree you got to be pretty desperate and also i feel like people always find out i just like always at some point. Yeah, I just like, I, I feel like if you become a librarian, it's usually not because you're like trying to hustle for cash, you know? Like sell drugs or something. I'm so Why glad did you brought you that up. Librarian? Yes. But also I think the stereotype of a librarian is normally someone that just loves books, right? And wants to like share in that enthusiasm with patrons. So while the library's management scrambled to find where the books had been shipped off to, the Swedish police prepared to arrest Burius at his home and take him to prison while awaiting trial for the thefts. In the early morning hours of December 8, 2004, police gathered a few blocks away from his apartment complex in central Stockholm, going over the ambush they were preparing to wage on the librarian to take him safely into custody. Just as they were finalizing their plans, a deafening explosion ripped through the pre-dawn skies at around 4.39 a.m. SOS alarms went out over the police radios as dispatch reported where the location of the explosion had occurred. As police, fire, and ambulances all converged on the scene, they soon realized that the source of the explosion was none other than the apartment of Anders Burius. What? Somehow tipped off to his impending arrest, Burius had slit both wrists before cutting the gas line to his kitchen stove. 
His bloodied body was found in pieces amongst the building's debris four days later. Miraculously, he was the only fatality from the explosion, though dozens of other inhabitants were injured. Is it is this a conspiracy? Like, did somebody kill him and try to make it look like a suicide? Okay, second thought. He tried to commit suicide because he didn't want to go to jail? What's Why did he, did he commit suicide? You know, you've asked the perfect question, Natalia, that leads in. Why did he commit suicide? Why did this average, everyday librarian who had been a librarian for a really long time and nobody would have suspected that he was the person stealing these books because like we just talked about it, that's not something you think of when you think of a a librarian. Mm -hmm. When I think of librarians that I grew up with at like my hometown public library, it was normally like middle-aged to elderly people who are have like kind of this grandfather or grandmother energy about them that are just kind of showing you around and they like know the Dewey Decimal System and shit right like they went to school for this they're passionate about it people were not only mystified about the way that he had died they were also mystified about the theft it didn't make sense to a lot of people what could have caused him turn to this life of crime and greed while many of the objects collected and stored in the library over the centuries are of significant historical value due to their rarity, there is one object in particular, kept on display still today under thick glass, that is considered to be one of the most cursed objects on earth. Many have wondered, and still wonder today, if Anders Burius, the once sweet and elderly librarian who sold so many rare books illegally under his charge could have been influenced by working in close proximity to this evil object for so many years. Could he have been hypnotized or influenced by its energy? Or was this simply a case of the avarice of man? Today's episode is about that very evil and cursed object stored at the National Library of Sweden. But before I reveal what exactly this object is, let me first introduce you to another man, a Swede named August Strindberg. Theater and literature enthusiasts may recognize August's name since he would one day become a famous and accomplished Swedish playwright and author. But in the mid-1870s, he held a different sort of job. From December of 1874 to August of 1882, August Strindberg was the librarian responsible for all the books being held at the National Library of Sweden. Working for eight years in this position, Strindberg became known as something of an expert on the rare and ancient texts held within the building. According to legend, One evening in the 1870s, Strindberg was given the task of showing a new employee through the building's archives. As Strindberg and his protege made their way through the mountains of brittle maps and photographs and towering bookcases full of dusty tomes, it came time for one last stop before the pair could call it a night. This last stop was Strindberg's favorite. In fact, he had become obsessed with this particular item during his tenure as senior librarian. Hesitating before turning the final corner of the tour, Strindberg spun to face his colleague 
and told him to prepare for what he was about to see. Creeping cautiously around one final tower of books, the duo came face to face with an extraordinary sight. A giant medieval tome made of animal skins was laid out on a table before them. Half the size of a full-grown man, at this point in history, the book was not yet guarded under glass as it would be in later years. So when August and his new assistant approached the magnificent manuscript that evening, there was no barrier keeping them from running their fingers across the pages. As if in a trance, August began to flip methodically through the pages, counting as he flipped. At page 577, he stopped. Tracing the outline of an elaborate illustration found on the page, he lifted his eyes to his new friend and gravely muttered, Do you hear the voices too? His assistant nodded his head and placed the palms of his hands to his ears, trying to block out what sounded like demonic, unintelligible whisperings coming from the open page beneath Strindberg's fingertips. Drawing closer to the illustration to get a better look, the young man gasped. Could it really be? He wondered in awe. But there was no denying that there, scratched with colorful ink onto the three-foot-tall calfskin page, was an elaborate and terrifying drawing of the devil himself. It was then that the new assistant realized what he was looking at. The book before him was the famous cursed manuscript known as the Codex Gigas, or simply the Devil's Bible. What? Hold on. This is a big wow. book. This is so it's a, just a big book that's in Sweden that someone had, I guess, had written in written it in Sweden. Don't hop too far ahead on the description of the book. First, I want to hear your thoughts about what is going on with this book. First librarian to encounter it, people say, hey, this is really weird. He starts acting uncharacteristically towards the end of his time as librarian there. We all knew that this cursed book was being stored there. It already was making people feel weird. There was already this weird story associated with it that I'm going to get into in a little bit. He does something totally out of character, seemingly starts selling books on the black market, was never interested in money before, suddenly becomes obsessed with money now. When he realizes that the law is closing in on him, he ends his own life in a very violent way that could have ended other people's lives. So again, uncharacteristic of the sweet man they knew. Now we have a second librarian that is going through the archives, showing um, an, a new assistant librarian the ropes, and they get over to this book and they hear this demonic whispering kind of welling up from this page that has an illustration of the devil on it. What do you make of that? I kind of have a theory about the first guy. It's a little less ghosty. It, it could still be ghosty. All right. So when he first told me his story, the first thing I thought was that he has no idea what he's doing. When you sell stuff on the black market, you have to make a, a forge of it. You have to forge a better or a version of the thing that looks the same, or else people are gonna pick up on it and they're gonna um, they're gonna know right. the thing Point. is missing. So when you steal a painting, you make another painting that looks to exactly like the painting yeah. you've stolen to sell, and so that you can replace it. So I don't think he really knew what he was doing as a criminal. I think someone came in and was like, "You're gonna sell me a bunch of these books, or oh. I'm gonna kill you." Maybe that person was a little bit possessed by this book being in there. But I, I think he freaked out at the end when he was going to get caught because this other person was going to kill him if he didn't 
continue selling oh, these wow. books. So like no way out. Yeah. Or maybe someone else that's, stole That's kind of my thought. Someone else could have stolen those books and then they just blame it on the librarian and then killed the librarian. Also true. Yeah. If, to take it like a, a step up the conspiracy ladder, yeah. I would say yes. That's Sorry, I went too far. <laughs> no, I love it. No, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is crazy. You know what this reminds me of, which is like so haunted and it's something like as an adult, I shouldn't like think about as much as I do, but I do. Um, have you guys seen that movie? Is it Evil Dead where they like read that book and summon like a demon to the cabin in the woods or whatever? They find like a yeah. fucked up book and it's like has all this barbed wire on it and it's like, do not fucking open this. Like, fuck you. Don't fucking open this. And they open it and then they like, don't fucking read this. Fuck you. And then they read it and then um, it like summons a demon. Yeah, like no one was ever supposed to read this thing and now everyone who does is feeling the effects of it. Yeah, like is that what's going on here? I'm really, I'm interested in this this book though. I want to know like where did it come from? Why is it in the library? Well, if the rumors are to be believed, this wasn't the only time that August Strindberg showed the Codex Gigas to a friend. The official website of the Library of Sweden features an article dedicated to the Codex Gigas accompanied by several photos of the book and of August. At the very end of the modest write-up of the Devil's Bible, there is a short blurb showcasing a photo of Strindberg along with the following narrative. Swedish author Eugene Falsted was known to recount a story of his friend, librarian August Strindberg, and the Codex Gigas. Strindberg was known to bring his companions along to the library to read the Devil's Bible during his time there as senior librarian. Eugene wrote in one of his journals that Strindberg brought him and a few other friends over to the Royal Library one evening after it had closed. No one was on watch that night, and, as senior librarian, Strindberg had a full set of keys to the library and its different rooms. The group of young men followed Strindberg through the dark maze of desks and displays until he stopped them at an aisle. Striking a match by which to see, Strindberg raised his finger to his lips, saying, Shh, it's just this way. Quietly shuffling in a straight line out of the aisle, they came upon the prize that Strindberg had promised to show them, the Devil's Bible. The ghostly glow of the match's flame illuminated the three-foot-tall text. Strindberg delicately peeled open the book to about the halfway point, flipping through pages until he reached number 577. Another one of the men struck his own match to get a better view, and the dual flames seemed to dance above the illustration making the devil appear almost as though he were moving and laughing in the shadows on the page below, as if delighting in the hellish glow of the orange and yellow flames that licked the still and stale library air. In the fall of 1882, August Strindberg abruptly quit his job as senior librarian after nearly a decade of dedication to the role. His abdication would come as something of a shock to his supervisors, and the following year, Strindberg moved out of Sweden altogether. From 1883 on, Strindberg would move to several different countries and publish dozens of plays, novels, short stories, poetry, and essays. As his career flourished, 
so did controversy surrounding his success. At one point, he returned to Sweden to stand trial for blasphemy charges over a text he had published wherein he proposed a more egalitarian view of the roles of men and women, which were thought to be contrary to the religion of the time. Within a few more years, Strindberg had filed for bankruptcy. Privately, people wondered, had August Strindberg, the charming librarian-turned-author who used to read the Devil's Bible obsessively in the dark of night, fallen victim to its curse? Why did he read the Devil's Bible in the middle of the night? I still don't understand, like, what the book, where did it come from? Like, why mm. is it famous? Why is it, like, on display in this place? And, like, people are like, oh, come look at this, like... Why are so many different people? Because it's not just the librarians that see it every day. Like, clearly there's a market for people to come look at this book if August Strindberg is sneaking in friends and friends of friends into the library after hours specifically to go look at it. Especially because at this time in history, it wasn't under glass like it is now. So presumably anybody would have been able to come in during hours to look at it. But yeah, there seems to already be this kind of lore and almost like we were talking about in the intro, maybe like a dark curiosity that people felt sort of ashamed, especially due to the like religious sensibilities of the time. Maybe people kind of felt like, oh, I don't want people to know that I'm interested in this. Well, wh- what makes it a devil's Bible? Like, is it written? Sorry, when you said it was like a medieval tome, I, I like made of animal skins. I was picturing like some, what language is it written in? We're almost to what the Codex Gigas actually is. I have one more story of an ill-fated librarian. (laughs) Are you ready for this? Yeah. Years before August Strindberg's brush with the Devil's Bible, another story of a librarian was published in 1858. In this tale, an unnamed man falls asleep one evening in a cozy corner of the Royal Library. When he awakens, he finds himself locked inside the main hall in the dark. He calls out to see if any security guards are on duty, but no one responds. Walking down the aisles of books as he tries, unsuccessfully, to open windows and doors, the librarian suddenly realizes that he is stuck in the building until it opens the following morning. Feeling suddenly panicked at this terrifying realization, he begins pacing, trying to come up with a plan to break free of the confines of the library. After a half hour or so of pacing, he slumps to the ground in defeat. As he settles in for the evening, the clock on the wall strikes 3 a.m. After the third gong of the clock echoes and fades, The librarian hears what sounds like the stiff rustling of pages. The rustling grows louder, thinking the sound must be coming from a security guard or a co-worker who has realized that he's missing. The man springs to his feet and sprints to the end of the aisle. Unfortunately, he soon realizes that there is no human there to save him, but rather dozens of books are simultaneously flying and climbing down the shelves, their pages blowing in the glow of the moon emanating in from the windows. The books begin swirling in the air as if swept up in some mystical tornado. In terror, the old librarian realizes that the books are swirling in a circle around the devil's Bible. The giant text slowly raised itself up, balancing on one corner of its binding as it swayed in the center of the vortex. 
the last thing the librarian remembered before he passed out was the sound of the chanting of many disembodied voices screaming over the crinkling pages of the books. The next morning, library staff unlocked the main hall to find the petrified caretaker shaking like a leaf beneath one of the tables in the reading room. He, quote, was and remained feeble-minded from that day on and had to be admitted to the madhouse, end quote. Wait, when was this? Like, what year was this? Written about in 1858, but it does not say what year. So hold. Um, this librarian oh, wow. had that happen. Hold on. Him. Let me get this straight. This librarian, like, went to the library, and then, like, all the books were swirling around, like, worshiping the devil's Bible. So he was working his shift and fell asleep in a corner of the library because he was kind of old. The library is normally pretty quiet place, right? And so because he was just not having much activity that day, he settled in in a corner of the library and falls asleep. But he wakes up in the night to realize that nobody knew he was there when they locked up. So they had locked up the whole building and then he didn't have a key like August Strindberg did because this was years before August Strindberg came into the picture. So he's trying to figure out, how do I get out of this building? Nobody's on duty tonight. I've been locked in here. He's trying windows, trying doors, can't find a way out. And then just when he's given up hope, he starts to hear this weird noise coming from one of the aisles. So at first he thinks he's been saved. And then he runs over there and realizes, no, all these books and the way that the article described it is books looking like they're climbing mm. down off of their place on the shelves. Wow. So and then creepy. they all converge over the devil's Bible and just start swirling. Yeah, I feel like that would happen to you, Alyssa. Like you would get locked inside yeah. a library. <laughs> and then... God, I can only hope. <laughs> and then all the One day. swirl. I hope the aliens get me, though, and not the devil. Mm. I'm, I have no interest in meeting a demon. But yeah. if, if a gray wants to come and impart some knowledge upon me, I'm down. Speaking of old men falling asleep in libraries only to awaken to the devil's Bible dancing in the middle of a literary orgy, we'd like to take a minute to talk to you about this week's very, very sexy sponsor, Dipsy. And this might actually be my favorite sponsorship opportunity we've ever had, and I'm about to tell you why, haunties. Are you ever out in the world going about your life when suddenly a sexy, impulsive thought pops into your mind? For Nat, it happens every time the Mothman gets brought up in conversation. For old librarians, it happens at 3 a.m. when the Devil's Bible is rubbing its 600-plus pages together. Oh, I fucking love books. And if you live in Doddleston, it happens when a green, glowing time traveler leads you to his attic bed made of hay. But for those of us who haven't yet been able to carnally commune with the supernatural, we recommend giving Dipsy a try. With Dipsy, you can throw on your headphones, push play on one of their sizzling stories, and get lost in a steamy fantasy world with hundreds of sexy stories designed to turn you on. Whatever your fantasy is, Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women 
for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and even fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of Let's Get Haunted, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash haunted. That's 30 days of full free access when you go to dipsystories.com slash haunted. That's dipsystories.com slash haunted, or just check out the link in the show notes. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Download Dipsy tonight and bang a cryptid. And now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. All right, Natalia, your prayers are about to be answered because now we get to part two. What is the Codex yeah, Gigas? God, please tell me because I've been wondering this <laughs> since the fucking before we even started the episode. I was like, Codex Giga? <laughs> like, what does that mean? What language is that? All right, let's go. Let's hear it. Now that I've given you some of the legends surrounding the fate of librarians who worked near the Codex Gigas, it's time for me to explain what exactly this book is and why it's considered so valuable and so enchanting. First, let's start with its name. Although the book is best known as The Devil's Bible and the Codex Gigas, the manuscript has also been nicknamed the Codex Giganteus, meaning the giant book, the Gigas Labrorum, meaning the giant of books, Satan's Bible, Old Scratches Bible, and the Black Book. Old Scratches? Old Scratch is another name for the devil. Old Scratch? Yeah, we talked about this in our in our um, Crossroads episode. <laughs> we did a couple years ago. Old Scratch is but, the yeah, dog's that's, name. That is not. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, the devil sometimes is is like manifested in a hellhound, oh, right? Yeah. Like a black dog with red eyes. Oh, I true. don't know. Wow. Could it be maybe related to that? I don't know. So its name comes from the large illustration of the devil himself found on page 577 of the book. And when I say a large illustration, I mean very, very large. This book weighs in at 165 pounds or 74.8 kgs. And the gigas measures three feet long and a little less than two feet wide. It consists of 310 double-sided leaves of pressed animal skin, and records show that the pages on which the codex was written likely come from the skins of around 160 donkeys or calves. Hmm. The book binding of the codex consists of wooden boards covered in cream-colored leather with ornate metal embellishments that now appear weathered and brassy with the passage of time. Its impressive size makes the ancient tome the largest medieval illuminated manuscript in the world. So I'm about to send some pictures yeah, in so the chat. Okay, so medieval, what, this is like from the 1400s? Like when was this book made? There's actually some controversy surrounding that, but the best guess, which we'll talk about in a little bit, comes from the early 1200s. Oh, Oh my gosh, okay, so Allie just sent a picture of like a sepia-toned picture, and it's of like a, a haunted man, like a, you know, one of those guys. Like, how would you describe this man? Like, he has like one of those- It's like, like early, early 1900s photo. Yes, and the guy's guy. leaning on a giant book 
that I'm assuming is the Codex Giga. So. And he's just touching it with his hands. What I know, isn't that crazy to imagine? That like people just used to be able to walk up and leaf through it? It is, that is crazy. Technically today, you when dealing with old books, you should use your hands, which I thought was wild. What? But I was oh, that is wild. I was Wait, instructed why? to do that when I went to the Library of Congress. Clean, dry hands cause less friction on the pages than gloves do. Oh. So you actually damage it less. But delicate old books still shouldn't be manhandled by hundreds of people. So, I mean, this guy... He's putting like elbow grease into it. He's got like his elbow on the book. He's lifting, like he's using his whole body to turn this page. That manhandling of it is probably not good for the book, but technically, yeah, you're supposed to use your hands. Well, that's interesting. That's a cool fun fact. What about the other pictures, Natalia? Can you describe the binding? Yes. If you guys want to see these pictures, go to Outlets Get Haunted on Instagram. Now, these other two pictures are of the book from um, like the top angle and from a side view, like a cross view. And you can there's a like a box of matches for scale, so you can see how big it is. But the binding itself is really interesting. It's got these really ornate metal protective pieces on the edges of the book, like on the corners. So I guess if you are turning it, um, like the corners can't fold. And then it's weird. There's like a wheel or something in the center. It looks like a compass of some sort with like almost like a thimble-sized like little um top on it and yeah it's interesting it looks like you could just you know like i i'm stuck on indiana jones stuff but it looks like it's a key to something like you could just stick something on top of it and it would like unlock you know what i mean yeah it does have that what is it hocus pocus where the book does that yeah yeah it is giving hocus pocus yeah it i was literally about to say that next i was like it looks like the book from hocus pocus um yeah, it's a really big book. And then the last picture I sent just shows it in modern times underneath glass. So that's how it is now versus how it used to be in that fir- first photo of the guy that's handling it. That's kind of lame, though. I see in the last photo you show, it's like at a library or it's in a museum type setting or whatever. So it's under glass, but it's not even open. So like the people can't even like look in it. You can only see the book from the side and the top because it's not open. Yeah, that's a good point. I think they probably store it like that because some of the pages have some damage, which we'll get to in a minute. But Kaylin, I'm curious, do your notes have anything about when that binding was added? I actually don't know when the binding was added. I don't, in like historical reenactments I watched about the book, they use the same binding ever since it was written in the 1200s. So I don't, I don't know if it's the original binding. It's in pretty good shape. I was going to say the book is probably closed because it's it's on animal hides and animal hides will tan over time if it's exposed to light. So the pages mm. will just get darker and darker and darker until you can't read it anymore. Mm. And a couple of the pages are so dark now because, you know, like the page that the devil is on, um, they can't really like show that page anymore. I wonder if it tanned or if it just like got haunted and turned black. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So, Natalia, earlier um, you asked me a question and I didn't answer it, so now I'm going to answer it. You asked about the text. How is the book written? What's it written in? What does it look like? (laughs) So the text itself is handwritten in Latin with intricate flourishes and borders composed of red, blue, yellow, green, and gold inks. If you were to read the book from start to finish, you'd find that it's divided into sections. 
beginning with one of the earliest translations of the Bible, known as the Vulgate Bible. Interestingly, the beginning of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is absent from the Codex Gigas. But the Gigas is not just an archival of Christian religion. Interestingly, it also features five full-length history texts, confessions of sins, a calendar, magic formulas, and even spells, including the recipe to use when exercising and banishing demons from humans. And I'm going to go ahead and send you um, the Library of Congress has a very nice presentation on what some of the pages look like. So before we get to the devil page, Natalia, if you can click on that link I just sent. I'm clicking it, but I'm like, what? This is crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a bunch of pictures in here. This is crazy. Um, it's just like all these different images, and it's like image 7, image 8, image 9, all the way until the end of the book, I guess. But yeah, I'm looking at it up really close, and it's just... A bunch of that like crazy haunted latin looking stuff it's not as like flamboyant inside as i thought it would be like when i thought was thinking of medieval art i was kind of thinking of like you know gold leaf stuff or whatever but i'm probably just dumb and like don't know enough about <laughs> art um <laughs> yeah this is really crazy looking i i'm also just like why is genesis not in there so it has Genesis in it. It's just missing the first few pages of Genesis. Yeah. And they don't know why. They don't know if the author started it partway through or if those are some of the pages that are missing. And we'll talk about how some of the pages are missing in a little bit. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So we're going to get into the legend surrounding the book's origin, but I do want to spend a little bit of time describing the infamous demonic illustration that has enchanted many a man and many a librarian. I don't see it. The page that showcases the devil is devoid of words completely, and I'm going to send this illustration to you both now in the chat oh. to describe to our listeners, because it is, I don't know how you're going to react, Natalia, but I feel like Kaylin and I are, because I listened to the episode you did, Kaylin, I feel like we're kind of on the same page about this being like not chill Ew. to look at like there's something about it that is gross uncomfortable to yeah, me yeah it's yeah I find it very unsettling some people have told me to them it looks like a character from South Park so oh my god yeah that's what the people character? that were like this isn't scary god I think it was god looked like that in South Park let me look I don't know which character it is they're referring to but you guys it looks it like yeah, it looks like God in South Park. I'll send it right That's now. So yeah, please send. So I it's know like a little crouching dude with like really long claws and like a dew claw, like a dog, and he's got a green face with really big ears and two tongues coming out of his mouth. It looks like, and then he looks like he's wearing like an acorn hat almost, like you know the top of an acorn but then the two horns coming out. It's just a gross, it's like a gross looking picture. So I sent the picture of what God is in South Park and it actually, it does look very similar. Like the coloring, I feel like looks- The coloring, yeah. Similar. The weird animal Okay, I quality. disagree with this though, because this is clearly, like the God character from South Park looks like a possum. And it's also like, um, I would say like a little bit chonkier, like that's a chonky boy. And this devil from the Codex Gigas is like a skinny, like I said, just every time I look at this, I just feel like, like, what what is the word? Like, turned off? Sending you one more photo <laughs> just of the face zoomed in. 
Because this is fucking nightmare fuel. Oh, okay. See, I find this terrifying. Yeah, this is really ugly. <laughs> it is so ugly. Why did you just send us three different pictures of the same? Yeah, thing? that just, last like, photo is really messed up. In. I'm going to go ahead and read the description uh, written on Wikipedia about this illustration. Yeah. So, quote, mm. the devil is shown frontally, crouching with arms uplifted in a dynamic posture. He is clothed in a white loincloth with small, comma-shaped red dashes. These dashes have been interpreted as the tails of ermine furs, a common symbol of sovereignty. He has no tail, and his body, arms, and legs are of normal human proportions. His hands and feet end with only four fingers and toes each, terminating in large claws. Both his claws and large horns are red. He has a large, dark green head, and his hair forms a skull cap of dense curls. The eyes are small with red pupils, and his red-tipped ears are large. His open mouth reveals his small white teeth, and two long red tongues protrude from the corners of his mouth. The double tongue evokes the forked tongue of a serpent, one of the forms of Satan in Christian iconography. So when I first saw this image, it was after I heard the lore of how it came to be, which is terrifying, and I'm, I know you'll get into it. But I was, it, it was much more unsettling than I was expecting it to look, I think, because it, it doesn't look anything like the devil I've seen before, mm-hmm. a, a devil I've ever like imagined. It just looks, yeah, it's just so weird that someone thought this up. Like, this is what the devil looks like. I don't know. It kind of feels like this person saw the devil and was like, oh, this is what it actually looks like, and then drew this. The devil usually is portrayed as, like, a cute, like, little animal almost, you know? Or beautiful. Like, in the Bible, some, some versions say that he's beautiful right so a lot of images of the devil will be like shockingly beautiful (gasps) i had never heard that before wait like he's like sexy kind of like what are we talking about like he's like he's he's supposed to be like tempting right yeah i don't even know if it's like fabio i don't know if it's like sexually beautiful or if it's like how we can't imagine god we also can't imagine the beauty of the devil i don't i don't know if it's like that um but wow to see this that is so sorry ugly but is like the the polar opposite especially in medieval times there were very specific ways that the devil was portrayed in medieval times he was always portrayed the same exact way and this is so different from the way Mm. that the devil was drawn by anyone else living in the middle ages so that it's also just like really upsetting in that way of like why did this person think this up yeah, I feel like it's just scary to me, too, because, like, the devil is usually really strong. Like, he has, like, a nice physique, you know? Like, even if he's half goat or something, he's, like, kind of ripped. And so you feel like, ah, oh, like, that's the devil. And then to see that it's just, like, a little skinny worm thing like this, you know? Like, a gross. It's gross. I don't like it. I can't look at that anymore. Kaylin, I agree with you. When I first saw it, 
something that I thought was like, this is so different from any of the ways I've ever seen the devil portrayed in literature, illustrations, mm -hmm. iconography, that to me, it makes it scarier because I'm like, why was this what was chosen for this right. very large, clearly this was an important book. The fact that somebody could have had access to 160 calf skins or donkey skins that were pressed in this special way, somebody that knew Latin, because this is all handwritten, like this had to have been an educated person that was tasked with something that was considered important. So why was the devil chosen in this way that normally medieval texts did not have him looking this way? Why well, I feel the need to draw the devil because pl plenty of people were writing out the Bible by hand at this time. It was the only way to write the Bible. There was no printing press, but like they didn't include pictures of the devil. Yeah, normally it would be something that's like taboo, right? Like normally you would have a big you know, picture of an angel or like uh, the kingdom of heaven, yeah. which this Bible also has. Um, the other illustration is the kingdom of heaven. But it, it's just interesting that an entire three foot page is taken up by the devil. And there's no text. So it's not like, hey, this is the devil. Watch out for him or this is bad. Or and then God came down and vanquished the devil. Like it's just the devil mm -hmm. with no written explanation. <laughs> and he's kind of also in, I don't know if you noticed, Nat, but he's in... A box like he oh, he was wait, let me look drawn in confinement mm -hmm. so yeah the kind of yeah. like God. yeah it almost looks like wood around him that's supposed like supposed to be confining him oh. I'm so glad you brought that up I mentioned that there are some spells contained in the book and so I got curious this was just a very very mild shallow rabbit hole and I wanted to look up some of the spells because I kept reading articles that said oh there's spells um, but we're not going to tell you what they are. So according to the National Swedish Library's website, the spells are recipes to cure sudden illness, feverish states, demonic possession, and even some formulas that describe how to capture thieves using various rituals. So I was able to find one of these spells written out and translated. So I'm going to send it over to you now. And Kaylin, I would like you to read it oh man uh, what if i actually do the spell though oh yeah that's scary what well, if it works this, i only sent one that i sent like the least harmful so it's just to oh. um, cure a victim of fever because i don't want to curse anyone unsuspectingly okay that's actually good because i just got a root canal and i'm terrified of it getting infected <laughs> so i do need to do this spell against fever okay so the translation of it it starts with KXK Pater Credo Lord Neifu, which has a, in the Latin version has a big question mark next to it. So I don't know if they know what this means. It says more against fevers, fexes Eric's master Dino, blood you drink and meat you eat, in blood you are washed, but collect 150 claws and lie down in a place like a yearling lamb. Sleep now and forever and ever, amen. Hold on, blood? Blood you drink and meat you eat, and in blood you are washed. They were kind of obsessed with blood in medieval times. That was they they thought like all communion? illness came from your blood being bad. So they were bloodletting. They were trying to like take blood away from certain parts of people's mm. bodies. I haven't heard of drinking blood and washing people in blood, but I know that they were really obsessed with blood. So I mentioned earlier that this giant manuscript was all handwritten, but what I didn't tell you was that historians who have meticulously inspected the text all agree that this massive work of art and literature was created by only one scribe 
with each sentence, chapter, and section of the book all matching in grammatical structure and in handwriting style. And this was actually incredibly unusual for the time when many scribes would all work on copying texts together. But beyond the fact that only one scribe working on a text was unusual for the time period, in this case, it's very nearly impossible since the length and size of the codex means that one person working continuously would have mm -hmm. taken 20 years to complete the book. No wonder they drew the devil. They like were going insane. I know. I kind of thought about that too because it's at the end. It's page 577. They're almost done with this book. Yeah. So they're at year 19 of writing this book. Like, yeah, they probably were going insane. Maybe they were like, yeah, fuck this book this bible this is now the devil's bible right or maybe yeah maybe it was some sort of punishment that he was given to complete this bible and he was feeling resentful we don't know oh. but in addition scholars who have studied ancient manuscripts are usually able to tell which section was written by which scribe due to personal touches baked unintentionally into the way that each human writes with subtle changes occurring in times of conflict sickness life events and mood the same scribe may actually have several different writing styles as they age or go through normal life changes what makes the codex so confounding is that as the national library of sweden puts it quote the codex has a unified look as the nature of the writing is unchanged throughout showing no signs of age disease or mood on the part of the scribe. So this to me was super, super interesting because something that is, is like my Roman empire is John JonBenet Ramsey and how there was this letter that um, the mother showed to the cops that was supposed to be left by the kidnappers. And they were able to look at it and be like, okay, we can tell based on this writing, a sample of this writing that actually John JonBenet Ramsey's mother wrote this letter. It's just like such a cool concept to me as like a science that you could write something while you're happy and then you could write something while you're sad and conceivably an expert would be able to tell you like, oh, you were sad when you wrote this. You were happy when you wrote this. Or if you try to fake something by writing with your left hand or you try to mask your handwriting, there are experts that can tell the difference. And so I thought it was interesting and kind of eerie that somebody who took 20 years to write this book he wasn't feeling shit the entire time. He was neutral or he was always in the same mood because it never changed with his age. He seemingly never got sick or if he did, his text was not affected by it. And that to me makes it scarier in a way because it's just like a person, a robot person writing for 20 years and that's the only thing they're doing. W one thing I'll add, this is not that interesting, but I'm just going to say it because I have a lot of thoughts and I talk a lot. Um, when Alyssa was saying like it's interesting that there's a science but behind your handwriting be affected by your mood you can definitely tell like when someone's painting something like an image if they take several days over um, like the course of a couple months or something to paint something you can see what mood they're in they'll like pick different colors um, oh interesting yeah I actually oh, know wow. I actually know this woman she um, is a mural designer and she's bipolar and she'll work on a, a mural like the same image for an entire month and like depending on what mood she's in like there will be different parts of the painting that are like dark different parts that are really bright but it like all goes together and it's kind of trippy at the end because there's so much depth and dimension in it because it's like so different in all these different parts wow so, that's really cool yeah i think it's like um 
I think that, you know, it would make sense that like your handwriting is kind of like your art because your handwriting is also like an expression of who you are. Like people can do sort of like handwriting tests or whatever, like they analyze your personality based on your handwriting. Like, oh, if you like write fast and loose, then like maybe you're fast and loose. Or like if you're like really specific, maybe you're like uptight and high strung. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely like there's something to be said about your handwriting. It's something so personal mm-hmm. and it's almost like a fingerprint. And yeah. so when people mm-hmm. do try yeah. to, you know, leave a note at the scene of a crime or something, they they do spend a lot of time analyzing the handwritten word. So the fact that we've now had so many years of analyzing this text and all experts have kind of come to this conclusion of the guy's handwriting never changes is very interesting because it clearly took place over a long period of time. So I've already said that this text is medieval in time period, but let's try to narrow that down even more to the early to mid 1200s. And we know this not only due to examination of the materials used to create the text itself, but also because the written records of the codex end in the year 1222. So if we agree with those experts that have said that the text would have taken at least around 20 years to complete, then the first pages likely began around the year 1202. And that actually makes sense because in a lot of different sources, I was seeing um, 1202, 1203, 1204, 1205 from different experts that had kind of made an educated guess on when they think this dates back to. But I say likely because the frustrating answer is that we don't really know exactly when the codex was created and we also don't even know who created it. Though there are definitely some interesting legends associated with its origin and I'm going to get into those in just a second but first I wanted to quickly tell you about three kind of red herrings that I didn't really know where to put. So the first is something called the black spot which Kaylin actually already talked about which is while most of the codex's pages are actually very well preserved with vibrant flourishes and borders, the page that contains the illustration of the devil is much darker. And people have described that as a dark or black spot in the middle. And some some people say that at the beginning of the apparition of this spot, it was much smaller. And now if you were to actually look at that page, it's spread out to almost the entire page itself. What is the reason for that? Some people say, well, this is because there's literally a curse placed on this page. The devil himself Mm. put his palm to this page, left his quote unquote signature, which is this illustration of his likeness, and it's cursed. It's imbued with some sort of magic, evil, dark magic, or even possibly a piece of the devil himself. And others say that no, the reason for its darkened center is actually from so many people over the years opening to that page because it is so captivating staring at it, touching it, um, the natural oils from people's fingers that maybe didn't wash their hands because they were sneaking around in the library late at night to look at it, and everyone kind of wanted to touch the center, which is where the devil's face is, that is what darkened it so much over the years. And what I say to that is I actually feel like it's way more haunted if it's darkened because people feel the need to touch where the devil is in the book versus the devil himself touching the page. Why, yeah, why are people like obsessed with touching this devil page? It's strange. Yeah, right, like stroking such like a repulsive illustration as we just talked about, it makes all of us uncomfortable. Yeah. Now, the second rabbit hole I had is missing pages. So there are 12 pages missing from the Codex Gigas, and it is unknown who removed these pages or for what purpose, 
but it is theorized that the pages were probably lost in a mysterious fire, although some people think that there were all these librarians that were obsessed with this book, and so maybe one of the librarians kind of ripped out the pages in some sort of fit. Ooh. So let's talk about the mysterious fire. According to an article for storymaps.com, quote, where the Codex Gigas was created is a mystery. The first documented owner of the Codex is the Podlazi Monastery, though it was likely not created there. Those monks sold the Codex to the Sedlec Monastery in 1295, who then sold it to the Benedictine Order of Brevno Monastery that same year. The Codex seems to have remained at the Brevno Monastery until Emperor Rudolf II took it to his castle in Prague under the guise of a loan in 1594. According to legend, Emperor Rudolf was obsessed with the Codex and effectively stole it from the monastery since he had no intention of ever returning it. He used to sit and stare at the Codex in his room for hours at a time, fixating on the devil's illustration okay. in particular. That's not normal or cool at all. Like, How was that even legal at the time? He was the king. No, who's going to stop him? So the text remained in Rudolph's castle library until 1648, when it, along with his entire collection, was taken to the Stockholm Palace Library as war booty for the Swedish queen, Christine. At this point, Rudolph is said to have gone completely insane. No longer fit to carry out his kingly duties, he was overthrown. In his final years as king, he was known to continuously sit with the devil's Bible and cared more for the occult (laughs) than for his own kingdom, collecting other supernatural texts and objects in his final days. In 1697, a mysterious fire broke out at the library where the codex was being stored. While the origin of the fire was never conclusively determined, many believe that the librarian of the Royal Library at the time had started it, driven mad by the Devil's Bible. Somehow, despite thousands of other books being burned to a crisp, the Codex Gigas miraculously survived, being one of only 300 out of the 1,400 manuscripts kept in the building to survive. Its binding was damaged, however, when it was thrown out of the window, striking and killing a fleeing townsperson (gasps) down below in the street. This book has literally killed someone. It was then moved back to the palace when it was rebuilt in 1768. In 1878, the National Library was moved from the palace to the newly finished Humligarden, and it was said that the Codex Gigas, when it was moved from one location to the next, was pulled there by itself on a sleigh being pulled by a human caretaker with the chief librarian Gustav Kleming walking beside it in a ceremonial procession. Yeah, none of this is well, normal. Can you imagine if like our president was just like sitting in a room for yeah. hours a day staring at an image of the devil? Like, just like people are like, oh, Mr. President, like, we need you into the uh, Oval Office right now. And he's like, shh, 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 I need a family. Yeah. <laughs> That's so fucking weird. Um, but I also, at the same time, it's like, this just us? Like, was this the medieval version of us? Like, they didn't have Reddit. They didn't have, like, rabbit holes you could go down to. Like, you just get this most haunted book with this weird-ass, like, picture of a devil and just stare at it for hours. You know? I kind of think that's what happened. There was, like, legend, you know, the legend of the book, like, spread throughout Europe. And so 
Rudolph, who was obsessed with the occult to begin with, was like, I must have this book. I need every occult book that's mm-hmm. cool that I want. And so he had his guys just go out and get it for him, and he would just sit there and look at it all day. Also, how haunted is it that he stole the book from a monastery? Like, the <laughs> king, who was thought to be, like, you know, at that time, royalty was thought to be closer to God, right? And then he's out here stealing from a monastery the devil's Bible, quote-unquote. It's just, like, so counter why did for the, the time, counterculture. Have, like, why did a monastery have a devil's Bible anyways? Like, that's kind of sus, right? Well, they actually... So, kind of a fun fact is the monastery that the devil's Bible was in had a graveyard in the back that they said at least had dirt that had consecrated Jesus's grave. Whoa. So they had dirt from his grave shipped to this monastery. So they thought they were so holy and protected from everything that they could just have the devil's Bible. Um, And then do you know, have you heard of like the bone church in what? I want to say the Czech Republic. Okay. Sorry. I'm Googling this right now. Look up here. Let me send you an image of it. Yeah, this is Sedlik Ossuary. I have not been here, but yeah, what the fuck? You guys, I'm looking at a picture of literally a bone chandelier. Like, it's like a chandelier. I don't know how to describe it. We got to put this, I guess, on the somewhere. Yeah, you'll have to. There's thousands of bones in this. The monastery that the Devil's Bible was in got knocked down during the Crusades, I think it was, medieval times, and this church got built over it. So this is what's there instead. Isn't that spooky? That is, especially because it's built on land that, you know, has soil from the crucifixion. And then, oh, ooh, just adds another layer of mysticism as well. Okay, now we come to the final part of the episode. This is the very last page. Part three, the legend. You've tuned in. You've stayed in your seats for this long. Here is the legend of the origin of the Codex Gigas. So there are actually a couple different legends. I only picked the most popular one. And this one I got from the website factscology.com. And it was copy-pasted into an article by journalist Hector Navarro, who wrote an article on the Codex Gigas, and then he put in this legend, the most popular. So, quote, Our legend begins back in the 13th century in a Benedictine monastery near what is today the Czech Republic. A monk named Hermanus Heramidus, later known as Herman the Recluse, is being tried for crimes against the monastery. Under his own admission, he has broken his vows and committed many sins, including lust, gluttony, pride, and bestiality. For this, he is sentenced to death by starvation and condemned to be walled up alive until his death. As the final brick is being placed in his prison, Herman cries out for mercy. The abbot, or head of the monks, makes Herman a deal. Since Herman was an accomplished scribe, he offers him a chance to live, but he must agree to transcribe all of the world's most pertinent knowledge in one night in one book. Herman agrees and gets to work, but by midnight he won't be able to accomplish the task and decides to pray for help. He at first tries to pray to God, but when he receives no answer from above, he turns his attention to the devil. 
the devil appears, and at the cost of Herman's soul, he offers to finish the book for him. Herman readily agrees. The following morning, the abbot is shocked at the sight, for there in front of Herman is the 160-pound book made of donkey and calfskin. Within it houses the entire knowledge of the world up to that point, and a little over 600 pages. With this, Herman's life is spared, although it is said he was tormented by the curse. His thoughts dark and evil until he could no longer take them, and in some versions of the story, rather than being dragged down to hell, he prays to the Virgin Mary, and she agrees to clean him of his sins, but with this act, he dies, and the devil claims his prize. And that is the story of the Codex Gigas. Now, I wanted to ask Kaylin, since you told a little bit slightly different version on your episode, what are some points that you like the best about the different legends that you read for the origin of the Codex Gigas? I think the scariest parts are definitely, one, being walled up alive, biggest fear horrifying. They would just build a brick coffin around you and you would just stand in place until you died of dehydration. Horrible, horrible way to die. Um, but then, yeah, also making a deal with the devil in a moment of desperation and the idea that he really saw the devil and then that's the actual picture that's in the Codex Gigas is the real portrait of the devil that man has never seen before. That's really freaky to me. Yeah, so, yeah, you just put in a photo of a merment being walled alive. And that's how small the space is. It's like they're building a chimney around him. Oh, shit. I, for some reason, was imagining, this is dumb, but I was imagining, like, a prison cell. Like, you would still have, like, room to walk around and stuff. And I was like, wow, that would just be so lonely and it would be so dark. You're just in this dark room. But no, it's like you're smothered. Yeah. Horrible, yeah, you can't horrible. sit down. It's torture. You can't sit down. I'm telling you, you these like religious people came up with the most fucked up ways to execute people. Like, what the fuck? So if you guys want to look at the images that we are discussing in this week's episode, you can head over to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram where I'll have them all posted in the photo dump. But yeah, essentially, you can kind of see, like you were saying, Caitlin, you can kind of see how someone would get so desperate to not have this fate right. because it's horrifying. Yeah being entombed alive in this tiny little space sometimes so skinny that you couldn't even turn around so yeah i mean you you're going to run out of air you're going to either suffocate to death or if there are cracks in the bricks you're going to die of starvation dehydration it's going to be long it's going to be painful you're going to be scared and conscious mm -hmm. the whole time you're yeah. claustrophobia so, yeah it's absolutely horrifying but as Kaylin pointed out when we were looking at the picture of the devil, perhaps the devil is in that tomb, is in oh. that walled up space, in that illustration, which would lead some credence perhaps to this to this legend. Yeah. Because maybe the devil appeared there, right? And while he was in this predicament of possibly going to be uh you know, walled up alive, and that was his way out. The devil appeared, the devil helped him when God wouldn't, and got him out of that bind, sort of, because at the end, he does seem, I mean, to pay the ultimate price. You know, we did an episode um, with a demonologist. It was about, like, the occult, and she, her name is Shawan Koo, 
Um, the episode was like summoning a demon. I think it's like episode 98 or something. And she was telling us how demons, like she summons demons in order to help her learn earthly skills because that's what demons are really skilled at is like they understand human ambition. They understand temptation. They understand human needs more so like she's like oh if you want to learn a if you want to learn a new language like work with a demon they're perfect at teaching you a new language like she was like if you want to write a book if you want to get fame or like success or you want to gain knowledge these are really like that's perfect to work with a demon and it's that's what i was just thinking is when he's you know was maybe he didn't just summon the devil to to give him get him out to help him like write this book or whatever oh, maybe I the see demon what actually like wrote the book for him you know oh that's interesting thinking of demons as like tutors yeah to teach you skills yeah. <laughs> yeah one of the points that she said too is like in exchange like a demon needs some sort of something in exchange and it doesn't necessarily have to be your soul it can be like a little piece of candy but she <gasps> said that the best a small way treat right yeah, a, a tasty treat. treat but she said that the best way for like to to work with a demon or whatever to like reward them was to um like refer them like to get their name out or whatever and so i'm wondering if this person really did get this power to write this book maybe oh that's God. why they put the image of the demon in there of the devil because they're wanting people to like that was their payment I, wow. It sounds like for her, demons are running this MLM. That's what it sounds like. You <laughs> yeah, have to no. refer. If you get five ladies under That's you, too funny. Then oh it will God. trickle down. <laughs> yeah, you get yeah, you get five servants under you. The blood trickles down. Yeah, Paimon is the top of my triangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. Well, okay, so just the very last little thing I'll say I didn't write it down is there is obviously a skeptic perspective to all of this I don't think it's as fun but some people have said that the reason for the devil appearing so large is because if you look at the page opposite of the devil it's this really beautiful illustration of heaven like the kingdom of heaven and perhaps it was like when you close the bible the kingdom of heaven is kind of like smashing the devil mm. is what some scholars have said. So it's not actually praising the devil. It's what I'm trying to say. It's more of like a fuck you to the devil because mm. he's being enclosed in this book that has this very large effigy of the kingdom of heaven. Now, could that be the case? Sure. But I think that there's a creepy enough history here that people have chosen to believe the creepy side of this history from the beginning. Choosing a monastery where it's thought that you could keep something evil at because it had the soil from the crucifixion there to like Rudolph taking this book and he goes crazy to all of these librarians that take that are working in the presence of this book and go crazy like yes there is a skeptic perspective to everything but it's not as fun and I think if everybody has chosen to believe the creepy side for this long we should keep perpetuating it totally I did read one theory or I saw a theory in a National Geographic uh, documentary where the historian was like the reason that the devil looks really fucked up in this version is because this guy was a bad drawer. Like, if you oh look at his God. other drawings, he was just really untalented. And so it's all kind of fucky. And, like, the eyes are crossed. 
And I thought that was like kind of funny. That poor guy. He's like, I dedicated 20 years of my <laughs> life to compiling all of like this side of the world's knowledge. And then now people are just roasting me yeah. in the afterlife. Yeah. Like, that historian was a hater, like jealous for sure. Big hater. Yeah. <laughs> big, big hater. I'm just going to read my sources and then ask you guys for your final thoughts. Sources, Wikipedia, Unexplained Mysteries, Atlas Obscura, Prague Post, Book Riot, Kungligia Bibliotheque, StoryMaps.ArcGIS.com, and the National Library of Sweden. In closing, I just want to know, do you guys think this text is cursed? I want to say no because I don't want to be cursed by it. Like, I really do believe in this kind of shit, and it like does keep me up at night, so I feel like for me to be able to sleep at night I need to just be like no this is not real yeah. but yeah. I feel like I like we're just gonna gloss over the fact that a guy fucking slit his wrists and like was blown up like in proximity next to this thing like whether that was, he was fucking yeah. murdered haunted whether he was did that himself haunted like I don't know what the story is there that's weird also the book fucking literally killed someone like right like it literally landed on someone and killed them yeah, in one of the mm-hmm. um, versions of the legend, yeah, it kills somebody that's fleeing this fire. I mean, underneath. that alone is like we're looking at a murder weapon. That, yeah. that yeah. alone is creepy. And you've never had internet issues on an episode before yeah. like this. No. And now we're talking about it. And all of a sudden the internet keeps going out. So yeah, maybe oh it is God. cursing us. But that doesn't also, make sense. Because if like we're trying to get the word out ab- about the demon, then like why would it be trying to shut us off? Oh, because the conspiracy, whatever it was, like the conspiracy that killed the uh, librarian doesn't want us to talk about it. Well, if we're all part of this demonic girl boss MLM, I don't think <laughs> yeah. the devil wants us to not talk about it. Right. Use my code HeartStartsPounding for 10% <laughs> off of your first order. <laughs> You're hilarious. so right, though. The demons you know? do have an MLM. It, it makes sense, too, because how many terrible people did you go to high school with that are <laughs> just so enshrined in MLMs to the point where so they'll reach out to you on Facebook randomly and you're like, I haven't talked to you in 15 years. I already know what you're going to say. And it's going to be asking me to try Herbalife. <laughs> I'm so sorry if any of your listeners do Arbon, but stop. Stop it right now. Just don't. It's happened two times to me. Have you guys ever been invited to one of the meetings and didn't know it? I went to a birthday party that, (gasps) okay, one of my very best friends, Amy, who listens to this show, invited me to her birthday party when I was in college. And at the time, we were friends, but not like as close as we are now. And I thought she was really cool. And so I was like, I want to be friends with her. And I went to her birthday party and it was an MLM uh, that like, (laughs) I think it was her sister's friend threw it for her. She didn't really know what it was going to be. And I bought one of the products because they were like, hey, we need to like buy if everybody here buys one product, like the birthday girl gets like a bunch of free shit. And I was like, well, I don't want to be the one person that's trying to be friends with this girl. And I am the one person that doesn't buy the product. So I bought it. It was some sort of cream with pineapple in it. And... Did it work? Uh, it, you know, probably not because I, I definitely still have acne scars. So no, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I got invited to like go hang out with this girl for lunch. She had just started working at the same place that I was working at. And she was really friendly and she was really nice. And she invited me like to go out to lunch with her. And she had she had like all this cool stuff and she like lived in this cool apartment. And I was like, how are you like doing all of this and she was like oh my gosh well I work for this company I was like da 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 she was like you should just come to a meeting like just talk about it and stuff and I was like 
oh, you know, I'm not like, I didn't know what an MLM was at that point. I was like, oh no, you know, like that's not cool. And she's like, no, like if it would be cool for you to meet all these people, like they're really cool. And then I realized they like pulled out like a presentation and started like talking about, like you were saying the triangle. And I was like, what is happening right now? And then I went home and I told my boyfriend at the time and he just wouldn't stop laughing. He was like, you, yeah, <laughs> you thought you were making a cool friend and it was all fake because they were just trying to get money from you. And yeah, she like- didn't actually care about you. No, that's how dark my curiosity is, is I've gone to multiple MLM meetings, like fully knowing <laughs> really? what they are. Yeah, fully knowing what they are just to like see what they were going to try to pitch me on Mm. and I'm never like rude and I never try to ask them questions and be like yeah but are you making any money like why are you doing this like I'm I'm truly just there to learn but oh yeah especially during COVID when we were all working from home and they started doing Zoom Monat meetings I was like (laughs) sure I'll listen to your pitch like (laughs) show me what you got yeah well that's strong of you because I find it so hard not to buy something when someone's pitching something to me because I just feel so uncomfortable like I'll go into a store oh true yeah this scarf is so cute like I love the scarf and I'm like that like I would never wear that scarf but I end up buying it because it's the cheapest thing in the store you know and I just like yeah and they're pressuring you yeah totally yeah Yeah, I get that I get that (laughs) I actually had that happen to me recently but that's a story for another episode (laughs) because for those haunties that don't hear what was happening in real time we had we lost internet connection at our studio four times while trying to record this episode but we needed to get this done because I'm leaving for Canada for a week and so I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much, Kaylin. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nat, for sticking uh, through the demons. Wait, what are you going to Canada for? <laughs> Speaking of MLMs, my <laughs> uncle has a timeshare and he can't use it before the end of the year. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And you can go like anywhere <laughs> that that timeshare company has places to stay. So he was like, do you want to go for free? Like, I'm going to lose it anyway. So like, oh, cool. if you just want to go. Yeah. So I get a week in Banff National Park, which oh, is going to be really oh, cool. Oh, that's going to be cool. sick. Banff is yeah. awesome. Lake Louise. I'm really excited. Ooh, yeah. That's going to be cool. And it's going to be winter. So like, oh, yeah, I'm just really excited. That's I just awesome. finished my itinerary for it. And I'm like, I don't go to the snow often. I've like never been skiing, never been snowboarding. And so I'm just excited to like be in the snow. Yeah, it's that's gonna be, gonna be awesome. Yeah. That's wow, great. that's cool. Oh, have so much fun. Yeah, hopefully it all goes well and the curse of the devil's Bible does not follow me. But <laughs> yeah. Nat, would you like to walk Kaylin through our sign off? Sure. So Kaylin, at the end of every episode, we do a sign off that's kind of akin to like how you would sign off on AIM back in the day, like BRB, gotta go like clean my dishes or whatever you know but we do a call back to the episode so you'll say like brb gotta go clean my devil's bible oh yeah say bye brb this guy just showed up to sell me a black market book bye, bye.